Welcome to the Awesomers.com podcast. If you love to learn, and if you're motivated to expand your mind, and heck, if you desire to break through those traditional paradigms and find your own version of success, you are in the right place. Awesomers around the world are on a journey to improve their lives and the lives of those around them. We believe in paying it forward, and we fundamentally try to live up to the great Zig Ziglar quote, where he said, you can have everything in your life you want if you help enough other people get what they want. It doesn't matter where you came from, it only matters where you're going. My name is Steve Simonson, and I hope you will join me on this awesomer journey. If you're launching a new product manufactured in China, you will need professional, high-resolution, Amazon-ready photographs. Because Simo Global has a team of professionals in China, you will oftentimes receive your listings photographs before your product even leaves the country. This streamlined process will save you the time, money, and energy needed to concentrate on marketing and other creative content strategies before your item is in stock and ready for sale. Visit simoglobal.com to learn more, because a picture should be worth 1,000 keywords. You're listening to the Awesomers Podcast. The Awesomers.com podcast series rolls onward, everybody. You're listening to episode number 40. Can you believe that we're at episode 40 already? It, just 40 days in, 40 episodes, that's a drop a day for those keeping score at home. Now today I'm joined by special guest Fraser Rice. And uh, Fraser is uh, a leading private wealth manager with over 15 years of experience advising millionaire and even billionaire families on financing, including fiduciary and estate matters. Now his clients have included business owners, hedge fund managers, real estate developers, corporate executives, foundations, and even so-called established families. Uh, Many uh, very wealthy families have what's called family offices, and he's been deeply involved in that over time. He's also the author of a a new book, Wealth Actually, and has been featured in the New York Times, Daily Telegraph, and the Journal News. He also hosts a podcast and blog related to politics, business trends, and entrepreneurship at FraserRice.com. I'm excited to have Fraser join us because as someone who's been directly responsible for managing not just millions, but even into the billions of dollars of people's cumulative wealth, that's a responsibility and and such a level of experience and expertise that all of us hard-charging entrepreneurs at any level, whether you have a dollar or ten dollars or even a billion dollars, we all need to have better education and better understanding on how do we deal with wealth as we're successful. Too often we run and we hard charge towards this goal and then we're surprised when it actually pays off and we don't know what to do. And there are so many unintended consequences I've seen for people, their families, and other kind of unexpected tax hits that they could have planned around. So many things that an expert like Fraser can help guide us through. So I hope you are buckled up today. It's going to be an exciting episode. Welcome back, Awesomers. It's Steve Simonson again, and today I'm joined by Fraser Rice. Is that right? Did That's correct. Woohoo! All right. Uh, you know, I, I have to say that I'm rocking the pronunciations today. Uh, uh, this is my fifth uh, episode, and so far I've gotten four out of five right, which is a record for me. Believe me, for those keeping score at home, it's I'm usually in the low 20% range. So uh, welcome aboard, Fraser. 
if it makes you feel any better, my boss, uh, who I worked with for 15 years, never spelled my name right once. So uh, <laughs> if you're if you're 20 percent on pronunciations, you're way ahead of a lot of people. I'm I'm definitely uh, I'm appreciating that uh, note for, uh, for my own personal ego. Uh, so <laughs> I've I've already uh, kind of read in the the intro and and kind of the general bio from from your perspective that you've shared, but I always like to hear directly from firsthand from you, kind of what, what, are, what are you involved in? What's taking your time? And, um, you know, what, what, what consumes you day to day? So you, you've reached me at a really pivotal time for me. I, I have just uh, come off 16 years working for a trust company. And so my job was to help entrepreneurs figure out their next step and uh, understand what their issues are and to help them sort of figure out where they were in their past life and where they're going in their future lifestyle and to make sure they have the assets to support it and what they what they do as far as spending and, and philanthropic goals and things like that so that you don't have a mismatch between uh, spending and assets and you end up poor, which is, you know, you didn't go through your entrepreneurial exercise to end up on the wrong side of that. Well, I've left the trust company world and I took the plunge and I wrote a book about my experiences in the trust world called Wealth Actually. And the goal of the book was to really take a lot of my experiences and my thought process uh, that I use to advise clients and put them into a book so that people uh, who are going from one different type of wealth to another, say an entrepreneur who's selling their business and going on to a different stage, or maybe they're living off of it or preparing to invest in their new thing, that there was a book to kind of help them go through the thought process of understanding what their issues are, uh, understanding the tools they have at their disposal, understand what good decision making looks like, and then understand things like what the threats to wealth are, and then also what the, uh, what the a good way to build a team around them and to put advisors around them so that uh, the advisors that they may have used as it relates to getting their business up and running and making them successful uh, may not work in a different environment where they've graduated to a new set of problems. So uh, what am I doing on a day-to-day -day basis? The first thing is I want to get the book out and uh, make it apparent for everyone and uh, sort of give it a chance to live and breathe and really give everyone a chance to read it. I think there's some good stuff in there. And uh, the byline of the book is intelligent decision-making for the 1%. And uh, in some ways, I, I regret the title a little bit because I think there are a lot of different things that are helpful for the people who aren't in the 1% who are trying to get to that point. Uh, so a lot of what I'm doing now is uh, doing a lot of publicity, uh, doing a lot of writing around that. And I formed an LLC around the book. Uh, it's called Wealth Actually LLC. And so I'm trying to, uh, I've got a few people who I'm advising at, on the advisor front and the lawyer front to try to help them get their message out and to help them understand how to, uh, how to ignite client discussions so that they're able to advise their clients better and be more productive so that they can graduate to other uh, scenarios and more sophisticated things that they can do to their do to, for their clients. Um, along that line, I'm also I've joined the advisory board of a podcast company, so that's exciting. And uh, since I feel like I have no free time whatsoever, I've also thrown in there. I'm working on a graphic novel with a friend of mine that's about three quarters of the way done, and we're trying to get that up and running by the end of the year. And I feel like I've got a whole host of other things going on, but but that's enough for now. <laughs> wow, holy schedule, Batman! That is uh, pretty amazing, and I I love uh, the different parts of this thing. First of all, and and for the awesomers out there listening, this is the time for you to pay close attention. You know, we're so focused on the journey, we're so focused on the doing it, doing it, doing it, and then when we have an exit event, you know, let's say all the stars align and we have this exit event, 
we often don't know what the next step is. We don't know what to do with that little pot of gold that we may have, uh, whatever size it is, it's, it can change the way you behave. It can change your risk tolerance. It changes all kinds of things for different people in different ways. And I, we've got somebody here who's going to give us some advice on how to deal with that. So I'm, I'm uh, thrilled to have you on board because I do think a lot of entrepreneurs, they race right to where they think is the finish line. And then they're like, okay, I got over the finish line. And it's like, no, no, the marathon, you're still going. And there's a lot more to it. So uh, are you going to be able to help us uh, think about the, that future after the exit? Is that right? That's the goal. Uh, try to give you some exercises, some things to think about. Uh, and really more of the point of it also is, is entrepreneurs get, start to see uh, the finish tape as they're sprinting toward the end. That could be an illusion, I think, in a lot of ways. There's, you have to run through the tape, first of all, in order to run your best race. And at the same time, you've really got to keep your head on a swivel because uh, there are a lot of different issues that pop up uh, that you really need to prepare for in advance of that sale. And I think that's where uh, understanding what your different priorities are, and in many ways, it's, it's sort of a deprogramming of what has made you successful in many ways. You, you've got to really open your eyes up and spread your antennae out and, and talk to your friends and your advisors and the people, you know, your peer groups. Uh, that have gone through this before and understand what the what's waiting for you at the end of that pot of gold so that, uh, I mean, we can talk about structures and things like that in order to protect your assets, but really making sure that your family is on board with, with the next phase. Uh, make sure that uh, people with your previous company or the company that you're building, that, that they're in a way on board because you don't want to just up and sell and leave things high and dry. That's, that's not how exits work anymore, it seems to me. There's a lot of earnouts and provisions where you, you still have your hand uh, a little bit on the wheel, even though uh, the financial considerations may be a little bit different. Uh, there's a lot to do to really open your eyes up to a bigger world and a lot of the different challenges you may face. Well, I, I really think this is a, a good time for people to pay close attention. It, it, the preparation is is ultimately what uh, can help you have a, a soft landing and and uh, even a, as that lifestyle changes, and it can change quite significantly depending on the, the situation, if you're not prepared for it, boy, it can be a pretty rude awakening for a lot of people. So uh, I'm definitely appreciating the, the fact that we can kind of predict the future a little bit uh, for some of the, the folks out there listening. Well, and the other thing, too, is uh, you can't always predict the future and things blow up and screw up. Uh, and so part of part of the exercise is also trying to, to find out what the threats are to your wealth so that uh, when you when you get past it and, you, and you've graduated into this really cool club where you've, you've exited a business and you've got you've got a little bit more optionality, you've got some space, you've got some room to breathe and think about what your next steps are. Uh, it, it's important to really, to really step back and, and find out what your, and think about what your priorities are going forward. Uh, and that can be a very, a very difficult exercise for some people, especially those driven entrepreneurs. Uh, we hear the, the quote about serial entrepreneurs and many times they're serial because they, they, they can't get enough of just one. They want to be a part of others and they want to be a part of other people's successes and having an impact economically or otherwise. Uh, and that's one thing you need to try to figure out. Some people uh, sort of address these concepts by by cashing out, uh, going to the beach for six months and figuring things out and then and then figuring out going forward that that works. My initial counsel for all of those things is to really take stock of what you've got in uh, personally uh, from an asset and liability standpoint, uh, figure out what your family goals are, figure, figure out what your philanthropic goals are, and make sure that you, you get good advice around that. And this is something that 
it's very difficult to time, but transactions certainly take a while to sort of, first of all, they die a thousand deaths and you know, that, that, that wears entrepreneurs out all the time. But uh, I would imagine that a, a good initial thing to do is if you feel the finish line coming and you can give yourself six months, I think it's good for an entrepreneur. And most entrepreneurs are very good at sort of allocating their time and, and being organized about it. It is well worth it to spend uh, a portion of your time and allocate it in your schedule to thinking about maybe even meditating over over what is important to you and what you want to think about doing going forward. Um, that's sort of an initial thought. Yeah, I definitely think that uh, too little uh, consideration is given to that future, whatever that may be. And that's, you know, that's something we uh, hopefully we can influence here today. So uh, before we um, jump into kind of framing up that the common problem that entrepreneurs face, and I, we're going to get into that kind of authority bit, I'd like to just get a little background on you because uh, you have some very impressive statistics that I, I think the audience would uh, find fascinating. Uh, but tell me about your first job. Uh, what was your first kind of proper job? Sure. So uh, I, I got out of college. I worked for um, I worked for Empire State Development, which is the economic development arm of New York State, and I was running around the state at a young age, helping people, uh, uh, helping New York State try to keep jobs within New York State or otherwise create them. And so that meant. Uh, uh, being a part of projects as far as putting uh, programs together that would keep companies uh, in New York or otherwise uh, try to attract other people to put a factory in or something like that where, uh, you know, 100 jobs would go in this county or 300 jobs would go in that county, that type of thing. Uh, I didn't want to be a civil servant my whole life. Uh, and so I went to law school. I went to Emory. Uh, so I was down in Atlanta. I had a host of different experiences down there. I worked for uh, my first summer. I worked for Merrill Lynch's general counsel's office in New York. Good experience on that front. Uh, my second year, I worked for the SEC my first semester, and then an entertainment lawyer my second semester, which was really interesting. I got to work with people like Usher Raymond and uh, Goody Mob. So uh, it takes sort of a, uh, you know, uh, a typecast white guy and drop him into a hip hop scenario. And it was a lot of fun. And uh, it was really interesting to watch these guys as their careers were just starting to take off and, and to be a part of uh, uh, counsel's office that, that kind of helped them figure that out and put some structure around it and, and to see real entrepreneurship happening at the music level. And this was right around the time that Napster was starting to take hold. And and they were they were seeing that early, and you could see the wheels turning with the management teams of of both those groups as they they wanted to get into other media, they wanted to sell other products, they wanted to diversify into other things, and that that it was really interesting to watch that uh, uh, on the ground floor. Uh, my second summer, I worked in the House of Representatives uh, with the House Banking Committee, uh, which was pretty cool, and I liked D.C., and that was a lot of fun. And third year, uh, I worked for the Federal Reserve in Atlanta, and it was at that point that uh, I was I was in Atlanta. Federal Reserve was cool. It was sort of a half general counsel, half banking regulation gig, which was interesting to me. I liked banking law, uh, and the people were really good. Um, as well, they're really thoughtful and, and a cool group. And I said to myself, uh, if this is as good as practicing law gets, it's not good enough for me. <laughs> and I, uh, I, I sort of said, okay, I'm in my third year of law school. 
I'm going to pass the bar. Uh, I'm going to do that. And then uh, I'll get back up to New York, which was something I wanted to do. I'm from Westchester County and I wanted to live in the city and, and do that type of thing. So I went up and uh, I passed the bar up in New York. I ended up practicing uh, uh, with my uncle's law firm, Rice and Justice, which cool sounding law firm it is <laughs> yeah well it could also be a buddy cop movie that yes was great, uh, uh, yeah. might have even been even more successful if they yeah. was, if they took that on but uh we ended up uh, i ended up doing a lot of banking law and lobbying type of work and had lots of projects in and around new york city with a lot of different folks and that was good but what it did was it got me up to new york and it got me in a sort of scenario where i could be productive while i figured out something else to do and I ran into a fellow by the name of Tony Guernsey, who started up Wilmington Trust's uh, New York office out of his Rolodex. He'd worked for J.P. Morgan and then started uh, UBS's uh, American private banking component. And uh, he liked the idea of lawyers as issue spotters. At the same time, he said, I hadn't been practicing law so long that my answer to everything was no or it depends. And uh, so he said, this is great. I'll tag you together with, uh, with a managing director here. And I learned the ropes with her for about four or five years. And uh, then she left to an, for another firm. And a lot of the clients, in fact, pretty much all of the clients stayed with me. And then I was on my own. And so basically, from a private banking standpoint, I, uh, I took care of the ones I had. And I uh, went out and found new ones. And taking care of the ones I had meant uh, sort of dealing with everything from uh, finding miniature ponies for them or getting them out of jail to uh, the more the more correct things you're supposed to be doing in that role, which is managing their assets and looking out for tax issues and trying to think along with their scenarios that relates to understanding their risks, understanding their goals, and figuring out uh, what they what they needed their wealth to do and try to allocate the resources of the bank to help them do it. And then if the bank didn't have something like that, to go out and find it somewhere else, uh, find the expertise either in a law firm or uh, an insurance company or whatever whatever they needed to do to get their total wealth picture figured out. Uh, yeah, or so that was your pony farm because uh, you guys or, probably didn't have that in-house, I assume. You know, we had to, we had to go find something else so, for that. Sub uh, that out, yeah. Yeah, yeah and the, the upshot of that is I learned you can actually FedEx a pony. So is that a fact? Wow. Okay, I, did not <laughs> I don't know, know if they do it anymore, but they could back then. So that we're was- learning here, uh, Awesomers. So help paint the picture, if you will, for a typical private banking client. Uh, you know, not not any individual, but just help people who aren't familiar with the private banking experience. What that's about, and and what a typical client looks like. Sure. So uh, for a typical client, usually someone who has built their wealth, meaning they they have uh, had some success in one field or endeavor or another. They could be a first round draft choice. Uh, they could be a business owner who has sold out. Uh, it could be someone who is the beneficiary of a trust who needs help in sort of articulating or figuring out what their next steps are and a sort of help them figure out where their uh, investments can take them. Uh, it can be corporate executives. It can be hedge fund people. Um, interestingly, it, sometimes people come to a bank, a private bank, and they have something very specific that they need. Maybe they need a fixed income manager or they need a uh, corporate trustee in order to effectuate their planning needs. And they and so sometimes Sometimes you'd have the the keys to the whole car, and you'd be able to, you know, they they needed help everywhere, and you could be helpful on that front. Many times, uh, especially when you're extremely wealthy, you're multiply banked, and so there are a lot of different relationships, and so maybe you're just 
one of many, or they need you for something specific. Um, and uh, I mean, at least at Wilmington, and this is true at many other places, we were very good at sort of investment management and good at certain things within investment management and a good fixed income group to be sure. Um, well known for our corporate trustee work. So when you deal with estate planning and putting structure around wealth for the first generation and then the second generation on down, uh, used for a lot of very big and significant situations there. Uh, from a private banking perspective, uh, we're able to lend against things that aren't liquid. Uh, so many times people need liquidity but have things bottled up in their business or uh, you know, in a stock portfolio or something like that. And so that's, that's what a bank does. They, they, make, they make things liquid that are coming from illiquidity. And a lot of clients use that uh, for a lot of different names. It can be personal or they could be borrowing money off of something else for their investment. And then the, the fourth major thing that the bank did was, uh, or does, is uh, they, uh, and this is sort of a catch-all, uh, they provide sort of the softer structure around wealth, things like family governance and sort of establishing value systems, uh, sort of personality tests within family members, uh, building family offices, i.e. sort of putting an accounting type spine uh, around a family situation so that you're able to, uh, first of all, know what the assets are that you have. And then second of all, make good tax decisions around that because many times uh, the, the, the value that we could add is on an after-tax basis and not so much on the investment side of things. Uh, good asset placement, good thinking around taxation and so on, is a, in many times you're saving a lot of money. A good example of that for an entrepreneur, for instance, is uh, if you have a business that you think is going to have an IPO, uh, it might be worth thinking about putting it uh, in, a, in a trust in a state that doesn't have state taxes, say Delaware. And so if you go in at a low basis and then and put it, uh, assets in a trust uh, in a state that doesn't have state capital gains tax, and then that thing IPOs, suddenly you save in New York any upwards of 10% on capital gains tax uh, for that scenario, that type of scenario. So that's one example of something that, that is worth thinking about for an entrepreneur who is looking at an exit. Uh, there are things you can do to set your family up really well on an after-tax basis if you if you give it some uh, prior thought. That's not to say that everything is, is bulletproof and that things don't change, they do, uh, but it's something that should be investigated and you can't do it after the transactions happened. That's, you, you've, the horse is out of the barn <laughs> at that point. Uh, even the miniature horse could be out of the barn. The, the reality is people <laughs> don't give, uh, again, enough foresight into this, especially if they don't have, uh, if they don't have a background in understanding wealth management, right? Uh, many entrepreneurs are scrappy. They're, you know, they kind of made something from nothing. And, and now they end up, uh, again, you know, with varying size little pot of gold, and they don't know what to do with it. And just that simple concept of pre-planning, you know, before an exit, and uh, you know can save a considerable amount of money. I have a friend who just sold a business. Uh, it's a couple of years back, but you know over a hundred million dollars. And you know he did uh, fortunately have the foresight to get in there and do some tax planning ahead of time. Had he not done that, he would have been sending a lot more money unnecessarily to uh, the various taxing agencies. Whereas if you set it up right and legal, you have no uh, issues. So that's a very salient wisdom. Do you, do you find that's a common part of the the uh, wealth management is kind of understanding tax strategies in the future. Oh, it's it's certainly it's the first thing people think about as it relates to their situations. And if you and if you think about income tax, capital gains tax, 
estate tax, which is something that you'd be surprised at how many successful people don't really think about estate tax that much. Uh, but that's, it's something that's very important. And, uh, and then when you have people who are thinking about their philanthropy, uh, which is something that comes to the fore more and more when people are selling off businesses and, and from an investment standpoint, the ESG phenomenon, which is environmental, social, and governance, uh, factors, that's become a much more important part of, uh, investment strategy. Uh, and it's, I, to call it a trend, I, I don't want to call it that because I think it belittles a little bit of the, the concepts that are behind it, but philanthropy is becoming a bigger part of, uh, the, the, just the general mindset of many entrepreneurs, even if they aren't necessarily giving money away to various causes, they're, they're looking at it as to uh, how do I, how does running a company these days, how does it incorporate these good factors that, that, investors at this point are looking at uh, and, and, and giving credence to. And ultimately, if you're able to uh, incorporate these good factors into your business, does it, does it function? Does it make your business run even better uh, than it would have otherwise? And some statistics indicate that it does. Uh, so there's, so those components, just to get back to your question, you know, sort of entrepreneurs who sort of drop into a wealth management scenario and what are they looking at and what are they missing when they come to it? Uh, you'd be surprised at how many people don't even have a will. And, uh, and so that, that's, uh, will or uh, sort of disability insurance, that type of thing, which I, I think is sort of good. That's good entrepreneurship anyway, 101. Uh, is, you know, if, if good entrepreneurship in a lot of ways is minimizing risk to the extent that you can as you try to build this thing uh, and, and minimize the, the stupid risks that you take, uh, well, stupid risks would be not having a will, not having a revocable trust, not having certain things in place in case you die and you, you, the thing that you're trying to build all of a sudden dies. Obviously, if you're dead, you don't care, but your family sure does. <laughs> and, and to see that you don't have key man insurance or something like that to at least give the thing that you're building a fighting chance to survive uh, your passing, uh, I think that's crazy. Uh, the other part, too, is you know on a disability insurance front, for people to not... Uh, to not have that in place, I think is is difficult. You could really put your family in, in a in a bad way if you if you don't have that going. Uh, a lot of people, you know, as an entrepreneur, your resources are tight. These are the things that some things sometimes this is where the the cash flow uh, stops first. You feel invincible. Many times entrepreneurs are young. What do I need all this stuff for? Uh, it's worth doing and it's, it's good responsible behavior and good, it's a good best practice to have your estate documents at least a little bit done. Uh, you know, healthcare proxies, those types of things. So that if something happens to you, that your family is, uh, at least, at least has some sort of way out and some structure, you know, following your death. Um, and this, you know, this isn't just relegated to the young. I dealt with a couple of real estate developers whose estate plans were next to zero and, you know, they were very, very wealthy. And I said to myself, oh, this is crazy. I don't even know what happens. Uh, what it is sheets to the state or something. And this is real estate and the, the taxes are going to be enormous. So this is going to take years to settle. And Oh gosh, what are we going to do? Um, but as a, a good wealth manager uh, is going to go in and, and I talk about this in the book, it, you know, it's sort of a process to think about this stuff uh, or a good, a, a, to me, a good methodology. I, I sort of borrowed from Bill Frist, who's the former Senate majority leader and uh, sort of family investor in HCA. 
and heart surgeon, he said, look, you know, the, the, it's real simple, listen, diagnose, fix. So the job of a good wealth manager, I think, first and foremost is to listen. And part of that is gathering information. And, and then once they've gathered as much as they possibly can, then the next step is to diagnose the different problems, spot the issues, figure out the things that you know, really, need, really need to get fixed, triage them so that you're prioritizing the things that sort of have to get done, then things that can get done over time, and then sort of wish list types of scenarios. And then fix, start executing. And, and what does execution mean? You know, it, it can be every, anything from, okay, I, if someone came to me and this has happened where, let's say a hedge fund person uh, is taking a lot of risk in their hedge fund, uh, and they've, they've, they feel like they've dialed in their estate planning, they're pretty well settled with that, but they, they would like, uh, they'd like someone to sort of keep an eye on their safe money. And like, oh, okay, what does that mean? So you go in and you say, okay, uh, how much risk are you willing to take? And they say, well, you know, treasuries are pretty safe. I think, you know, these guys seem competent. You can do more than that. I'd like to do well on an after-tax basis if I can. And then you start putting together an investment policy statement, that type of scenario for that particular person. And that would probably it'd be extremely narrow compared to most people. But uh, they'd say, I, I wanted in fixed income instruments. I'd rather have a lot of munis. I don't really need anything in corporate debt, but let's say we'll put a little bit there. You build some guardrails around that so that you figure out which way to go. And, uh, and that's one way to do it. So you fix. Uh, so listen, diagnose, fix. And then the other part, the next part of the, the cycle in my world is to anticipate. So the really good wealth manager is on top of your situation, is meeting with you somewhat consistently and, and is listening for the things that are changing in your life. For the entrepreneur, could be the sale of a business. Uh, for some people, birth of a child. Could be the death of a parent. Could be a parent going into a nursing home. Could be, it could be a lot of different things. It used to be uh, you know, for the for the super wealthy, it's sort of birth, marriage, uh, divorce, sale of business, death, and those are the things that got mentioned in the newspaper, and uh, and those are the, those are the the times that they'd come calling necessarily, and uh, uh, and you'd sort of figure that out. Um, these days, uh, depending on the level of wealth that you have, it can be the, the scenario, geez, you know, I've lost my job, my income stream has dropped. How do I shift my investments around so that uh, I and my family can survive this uh, for the next set of months while I find a new job? And, and how do I do this so that I don't put myself in a bigger pickle? Uh, if the stock market drops, have I been, um, am I adversely affected? Now, hopefully there's some foresight, forethought that's gone into that and, and, a, and a big change in the market doesn't adversely affect too much. But that's the type of thing that, that a good wealth manager, I think, takes a look at and says, okay, uh, this is uh, this is something that needs to be addressed. You may be taking more risk on than you think you need. Uh, maybe you're not taking enough risk. You're not, your assets aren't going to grow to the extent that you'd like them to so that you can enjoy a good retirement or that you want to fulfill the legacy goals that you have going forward. There's so many pieces to the puzzle, right? And this is, this is one of the, the things I talk about from time to time, which is experts make a difference. Right. I, I, I will never be a wealth expert because people like Fraser, are there, that's that's their whole deal. That's that's what they like to do. He's written a book on it. So, you know, he's good. Having experts who can help you and uh, navigate this, you know, whatever new worlds are. And and I have experts of every kind. Right. Uh, all kinds of lawyers and different kinds of financial people and operations people and supply chain people. 
you know, the best entrepreneurs, I think, build that team around them. And you alluded to this earlier. You know, how do you solve the problem? You don't have to do it all yourself. Uh, it just starts with you taking some action and get some experts. I, I definitely want to make a general call to action for entrepreneurs out there. If you don't have a will, now it's time to get one. You know, get on the ball. Uh, this I know we're all invincible and we're never going to die. I know myself, you know, I, I won't die, but the rest of you who will die, you guys need a will. Uh, and let's make sure we get one of those. And then, you know, as you start thinking about the other things, disability insurance and some of those other things that are just, a, they're a, they happen over time. People get disabled. I, I'm sure you know the statistics and things like that, but, you know, people who have the lightning bolts in their lives and they're not prepared it makes it much tougher to get through. I'm sure you've encountered some of those uh, lightning bolts that happened to people. They weren't prepared and it was much more challenging for them. Is that true? It's it's hard even if you are prepared. I, I think, uh, you know, it, an example of that is when people have uh, parents who are, uh, you know, they're going to have to start taking care of going forward. And I mean, the, the statistic is something, you know, the last two months of life are more expensive than, you know, the previous uh, sort of 90% or 95% of life uh, just on a, on a medical basis. Uh, you know, it's those types of things you can build and you can build as much of that into your thinking as possible. And it's still really expensive. Yeah. Uh, and so I, 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 to hearken back onto your earlier point, I, for a lot of entrepreneurs, I think I, I've, I've seen some entrepreneurs have done it themselves. I, but, entrepreneurship's a team sport. Invariably, you have people advising you. You certainly have lawyers and accountants and so on who are helping you do this. Uh, you have, it, many people have a board uh, of, of advisors that come from a variety of different groups to kind of help them uh, figure things out. Many times you have people helping you to raise money, uh, all sorts of different jobs that, that are necessary in order to get something off the ground and to make it successful. And, that, and not only to get it sort of successful early, but then to scale it going forward. Um, so I would say that, that as, as you're graduating into a new set of wealth going forward, I would take those principles of teamwork that you've relied on from the peer groups that you've joined, uh, from the, from the friends that you've, the, the, that aren't part of your industry, let's say, but, but have gone through similar types of things or bring different types of expertise to it. I would, I, I talk about this a little bit in the book where, uh, the idea of, of creating your own shadow cabinet. Uh, in a sense. And I borrow that from a government standpoint. So you have sort of the typical cabinet and then the president has a bunch of other people that he talks to that aren't part of the the formal structure that that help to figure things out. I, I, I think that's extremely useful. Uh, you know, I guess one of the statements is that, you know, when you read a book, you get the benefit of somebody of somebody's whole life experience. And so when you, by the same token, I think if you construct a board around you and in a sense have uh, you know, whether it's your wealth manager or your lawyer or your account or something, but, but having a personal CFO, uh, I think that helps uh, on a strict financial basis. Uh, I think that helps sort of helps you, you, the entrepreneur, think through the different issues that you have, borrow from a lot of experiences, um, and avoid the rookie mistakes that many other people might have made and incorporate that into your own decision making going forward. And I think that that's a good uh, I, I think that's a good best practice, and and, and as it relates to finding good advisors, there's lots of there's uh, lots of different tips to doing it. Certainly, referrals from friends who've had good experiences is a good way to do it. I like the idea of of having a two pronged approach. I, the the first prong is to get referrals of people who've had success with either a different wealth manager or estate planning attorney or accountant or uh, whatever you need on that front. 
But by the same token, I think it's worth uh, making the institutions hustle a little bit for your business and requesting a, a, an RFP, a, a request for proposal, and to see what what the formal uh, what the formal response is to something like that, as opposed to just having someone uh, come in and you know set up an account for you and kind of hope from there. I think uh, forcing the forcing institutions to go through a little bit of a formal exercise with you. Uh, first of all, you'll get a lot of uh, clarity on fees and I think that's always an important thing when you're dealing with any vendors you you want to understand what you're paying and what you're getting for it uh, but that it's it's it, having those two sets of data points is going to help you assemble a really good team yeah boy again really really solid wisdom there I hope people are paying close attention um, we're going to take a quick break but when we come back now that we've framed up the problem we're going to talk about how do we go about fixing the problem and how do we start addressing some of these things maybe before they, they have occurred, before an exit and so forth. Uh, we're going to do that right after this break. Empowering. The name says it all. Connecting e-commerce entrepreneurs with great people, ideas, systems, and the services needed to stay business dynamic and to grow. Empowery is a network, a cooperative venture of tools and resources to make you better at what you do. Because we love what you do. We are you. Visit Empowery.com to learn more. You're listening to the Awesomers Podcast. Okay, Awesomers, we're back again, and we've got Fraser Rice. Uh, he's telling us everything we need to know about wealth management, and the number one takeaway is we should go uh, buy this book, Wealth Actually. Is that correct? Actually, correct. That's Woo-hoo. terrific. <laughs> All right, Wealth Actually. And uh, I assume we could buy this on Amazon, yes? That's right, Kindle and paperback. Okay, wonderful. So we're going to get on that and we're going to get that done. And then after we read it, we're going to leave a nice review because awesomers pay it forward. That's what we do. Um, and this is a, an important type of thing for entrepreneurs to consider. And I'm, I'm really glad that you're here to help kind of walk us through the preparation and then the, you know, the considerations that we need to think about. So we've talked in general about this premise that maybe the, the framing of the problem is that entrepreneurs often don't have enough preparation or don't have enough foresight to really put this stuff into play. And now I wonder if you can give us some, some general advice. You've talked about maybe building the board of advisors and seeking out counsel and so forth. Is there anything that we would do to start addressing the problem earlier that maybe on a more holistic level or some other tactics that you could recommend? Sure. Uh, you know, really the technical aspects of it are the easiest. I think the idea, you know, once you sort of understand, I need a will, I need a trust, I need to do this to get this to my beneficiaries and that goes in a tax-free way, uh, that that to me is the easy stuff. I think uh, the real issue, I think, you know, the concept of, and the, what I just described is getting the money ready for the family. Uh, and that that's, that, that many times that's technical, maybe there's some complication to it, but usually it's surmountable. The more difficult part, and I think the part that's really worth spending some time on for the entrepreneur, and maybe something that's counterintuitive, would be the idea of getting the family ready for the money, uh, as much as getting the money ready for the family. And so what do I mean by that? Uh, One of the, I think one of the chief threats to wealth is the concept of miscommunication within the family. for the entrepreneur, especially one who's starting from uh, a sort of humbler backgrounds and, and for whom this is new, this is something that is not necessarily apparent. Uh, it, for what the, the, the comment shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations comes to mind. And uh, what that means is essentially that the first generation makes the money. The second generation 
enjoys it, and then the third generation ultimately loses it. Uh, what happens, especially for larger families, is that the as families get bigger, and by that I mean geometrically bigger, uh, the assets hopefully are growing linearly. And at a certain point, uh, those are a lot of mouths to feed, and the assets can't keep up with that over time. What we're talking is a generational phenomenon. It's been discovered across different cultures. Uh, over in Asia, it's uh, rice paddy to rice paddy. Uh, in England, I believe it's clogs to clogs. Uh, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves. It's uh, something that it's an old, uh, old maxim uh, and a line in our industry. Jay Hughes repopularized it uh, a few decades ago. And, uh, and it's just, it's just true. Uh, you, you can't, you can't go from having sort of husband and wife and then three, you know, three kids. And then those three kids have three kids and et cetera, et cetera. Um, Ultimately, you, you can't, the wealth can't keep up with that over time. It's just, I think it's physically impossible. Uh, so what you're trying to do in terms of getting the family for the, ready for the money is, is avoid the inter-sibling warfare that sometimes happens or the uh, production of trust fund kids uh, who are not productive in their own right. Um, that is where the entrepreneur, I think, has to really take a look at uh, and understand what what he's look what he has in terms of a family, what he has in terms of the structure um, as it relates to uh, are there is there someone with a special needs issue? Are there uh, people with different aptitudes who are either thinking about taking over the business? Are there people who are entitled? Do they get into are, are there drug issues? Are there spending habit issues? These are the softer sides of wealth management where we try to help the the entrepreneur or the and, client it doesn't have to be an entrepreneur necessarily maybe they've got their money from some other source but try to get them to understand that that in planning and structuring for the next generation that there may be a lot of very uh, qualitative issues that have to go into place that the technical side be getting the money for the ready money ready for the family part in place uh, that, that that it has to address and what I tried to talk to clients about is the fact that you can't necessarily put a structure in place that is going to be perfect uh, for all situations. Uh, life intervenes, uh, you know, you, you could get hit by a bus tomorrow, uh, you could have someone who develops cancer, you have someone who wins the lottery, you could have a whole bunch of things that an estate plan can't, can't articulate. Uh, it can't articulate against all uh, eventualities. So then the other thing I try to put into place is the concept that this is this is a living breathing thing that has to be revisited. Uh, and it has it should be revisited fairly frequently. By that I mean, at a minimum every five years, uh, I would say, you know, for the truly obsessive every one year is probably fine. But uh, for most folks, uh, even if you don't have any particular changes in family structure or anything like that, uh, there are legal changes. So Trump coming into office created a whole bunch of scenarios, uh, not least of which the expansion of the uh, federal tax, estate tax exemption, uh, that is something that, that's changed estate planning for a lot of people. And so for a married couple, I believe it's a little over 20, I think it's $22 million uh, in an exemption. That's a lot of money. And uh, to not take advantage of that and to let that sit may be, may be stupid because it's going to sunset in 2025. So that's something where anytime, uh, I, I would argue that any life event is worthy of a look 
at your estate plan, life events, you know, uh, births, marriages, uh, deaths, sale of business, divorces, uh, those types of things where you have a real transition of wealth. It's worth making sure that your estate plan is in place on that. But the other one is to keep your eye a little bit on on the news as it relates to changes in tax law, because uh, those types of things may either provide an opportunity that you want to take advantage of or a scenario that you've got to be careful of and, and make sure that your plan is, uh, to the extent possible, bulletproofed uh, against that kind of eventuality. Boy, yeah, that's uh, a good reminder that there's the, both the internal factors, the family and the life changes, but the external factors tax law and government changes and things like that. And they can make quite a difference, obviously, depending on the nature of the, the situation, right? Somebody could find a vast difference in that new exemption versus the, the prior exemption, which, as I recall, was much, much lower, maybe 10 times lower. Yeah, it, it, it was uh, 5 million per person. So per a married person, couple, so I guess it got up to about 11 million when indexed for inflation. But, gotcha. uh, but yeah, so the, those types of things. And then you know, for any entrepreneur at this point, I mean, the, the the tax law changes as it relates to things that are deductible on an income tax level, and you know, which structures you know do you incorporate? Do you have a partnership? That type of thing. That all of that is being worked at right now, and uh, you know, the same with the same vigor that you that you protect your business from those income tax scenarios and making sure that you can deduct things and take advantage of whatever credits you can. Uh, it's worth doing that on a personal level uh, because I think ultimately when you sell the business and you start other businesses or do other things, uh, you're, you're left with the structure of the wealth that you have as it relates to your family and to uh, sort of hide or stick your head in the sand on that could create a lot of issues and undo a lot of the good that you did in terms of producing a good business. Yeah, that's uh, that's the part that um, I I definitely hope that we can we can have folks out there take advantage of the idea of pre-planning and thinking ahead about this stuff, and avoid those unwelcome lightning bolts that happen. Um, as you said, life does happen. You know, things are going to happen that you know we don't expect, we don't anticipate. But to if at least to the greatest extent possible, if we can anticipate and plan we'll be better off in the long run, in my opinion. So I think that's uh, something that, you know, entrepreneurs or anybody, you know, who finds themselves in a wealth management situation, you gave a, a number of examples, you know, uh, somebody who, you know, just, you know, first round draft pick, they just got, you know, basically rich. Uh, uh, somebody who's already, you know, got a trust and they're, they're being managed, uh, have their wealth managed by somebody else. Uh, and there's other scenarios that exist, I'm sure. So the, you know, I guess my question for you, uh, as you think about, you know, people starting to apply this, the fix to the problem, do they, is there uh, a way for them to make it easier? Um, obviously, my advice would be to start by reading your book, at least get it some foundation. And then once mm -hmm. they read the book, will they have some calls to action in there? Sure. Well, I, I think there are a few different things to that I that are useful. I think the first one is to, uh, from a call to action standpoint, from an entrepreneurship perspective, I think having a good set of uh, understanding what makes you tick and what your value system is, is a good thing, because that will help you uh, realize what you want to transfer to the next generation. Uh, do you want your kids to uh, start from nothing? Do you want them to have every advantage possible? Do you want them to 
have some advantages or some strings tied to it? Do you want them to have the incentive to do things? Do you want them to be taken care of to without having to do anything at all? Uh, that that's a personal decision, and that's something that 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 any uh, you know estate planning attorney or accountant or when they're when you're starting to think about this, uh, they're going to want to know the answer to that because that's going to drive a lot of the different types of uh, uh, planning that they do for you. Uh, I would say one of the most important things you can do is, is a good call to action is it's and I I think one of the really good things you can do for your kids and your spouse uh, is to make sure that everyone has a similar grounded uh, level of financial literacy. And, uh, I, and what do I mean by that? Um, many wealth managers will take you through an education process if you want it. Uh, and many times you have a bunch of kids who have their eyes glazed over at, once you start saying stocks versus bonds and you know they want to do something else or they want to play Fortnite or do whatever. Um, so sort of the traditional ways of doing good things as it relates to financial literacy, sometimes you have to kind of sneak in through the back door to teach these lessons. And so I have a couple of concepts, at least, uh, at least to sort of give kids a little bit of an idea of, of how to work together and understanding what their strengths and weaknesses are and, and families in general. And I think one of them, uh, the first one from an allowance standpoint, and this is something you can do very early. Uh, I got this from a golf pro, actually. And I said, aside from curing my slice, you managed to give me something I can think about here. Uh, the idea from an allowance standpoint, if you give someone, if you give one of your kids $5 in allowance to take back two to help them understand the impact of taxes. And uh, it's just a, it's a very simple, stupid little thing. But at the same time, I think it gets the point across that that just making $5 is great, but there, there's a bigger world out there. And, uh, and look, I, 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 I'm sort of a limited government guy, generally speaking, but you need to pay taxes in order to make the infrastructure work and to make sure you have a functioning, uh, you know, country, state, city, town, et cetera. Uh, just understand that that's part of what you do. And um, so that's one little exercise. Uh, another exercise that I think is interesting that teaches kids, uh, and I got this from a colleague at Wilmington Trust, uh, that it teaches kids the idea of working together uh, and also some accountability principles is the idea of uh, taking a pool of money for a family vacation. Let's say he had $1,000 and say he had three kids. Uh, to take the three, to have the three kids invest the money for the vacation, and so if you do well, uh, you own a better vacation. If you tank, it's a staycation. And uh, but the kids, a couple of good things happen with this. The first part is that the kids, um, they're learning investment principles, and so over, you know, they'll they'll learn the idea of uh, you know sort of bubble stocks. Uh, fixed income, being conservative, being diversified, you can teach a lot of different things in there. The thing that really helps out though, is it helps them make decisions together. And one of the real scary things that I've seen in wealth management, generally speaking, is that sometimes for the kids, the first times they really even talk about money occur when the estate's getting settled, uh, when the father dies or the mother dies or whenever that happens. And so when you're learning about doing these things and you're making these decisions together for the first time in an emotionally fraught scenario like that, boy, it gets ugly. And, and it also creates a situation where if there's a lot of resentment or if there are issues where one's been favored over another or, th you know, all sorts of 
slights perceived and imperceived and real or not real, they come to the fore. And that infighting is the fastest way to watch wealth evaporate. Uh, that's when litigation happens and that's when, that's when bad things occur. So that first part where you talk about uh, – uh, you know, the idea of having a family vacation pool and having the kids invested, you're teaching them investment principles, you're getting them to communicate with each other about money. And then finally, the other third part is they're accountable, you know, there's no money in the fund, you're not, you're not doing it. So you know, the parents have to buy into it too. But uh, you know, I think it's an interesting family exercise. The second family exercise is the idea of shared philanthropy, uh, or the idea where you get let's say you have three kids and four dollars to give away. Well, you give each kid a dollar to give away. And that tells, it gives you a lot of data points about what's important to kids, uh, the, the kids individually. They, they, they want to give to, one wants to give to cancer research, one wants to save the whales, one wants to, uh, you know, uh, create clean water in Africa or something like that. that. That's neat. The fourth dollar is interesting because if you have, if you have that be a group decision-making process, uh, you, you get the family working together to give that last dollar away. It's a great way to transmit family values uh, from the from the older generation to the next generation. And, uh, and, and it's another way for the family to work together on something around money uh, and move it forward. And I think that's just, a, those are three exercises that I think from an entrepreneur's perspective, uh, they're, they're, they're simple, they're small, they, they don't deal with the business, and it's a backdoor way to really teach kids a lot of different financial uh, concepts that, um, that a typical lecture course is never going to quite get to. Uh, and we use that, I, I use those examples all the time, and, and some families use them, some don't. They, they, get, they get going you know, along the way. And, you know, sometimes it's more work than it's worth, but, uh, I think it's, I think it's a good set of things to, to impart. Oh boy. Those are really fun ideas. Uh, so first of all, I, I, I do want to share kind of just a, a little side story. So I have a very dear friend and, you know, his, his family is quite wealthy. Uh, but there was uh, some of this sibling infighting and it turns out there's even a, a bonus family they didn't know about in another city that had another $100 million of wealth built up. And when the, when the patriarch uh, passed away, it, there was no clear will, there was no clear, and there's a, over a billion dollars worth of um, money up for grabs. And so it was, just, it was just a fight and litigation and contention. And you know, family relationships are you know, strained at best and, and ruined at worst. And it, to me, it's, a, it's an unfortunate situation because they could have they could have done things like working together. I, I love these. These are actually very clever ideas about creating alignment and creating the the development of skills that are necessary in kids to to manage future wealth and things like that. Um, so really, really good advice. Uh, when we come back after this break, I'm going to tell you about the dad tax that I've been imposing for years. Uh, you're going to love it. We'll be right back after this. Hey, Amazon Marketplace professionals, congratulations on your success to date. Your creativity, strategic vision, problem solving, and discipline have allowed you to build your own e-commerce business. 
Wouldn't it be great if you had more time to focus on the things that truly drive the sales and growth of your company? Instead of getting lost in a dozen different services and countless spreadsheets, what if there was one system that connected to your Amazon account and automatically gave you the information that you needed to make great decisions and really impact your business? Parsimony ERP can do that. Parsimony is the business operating system for your marketplace business. With Parsimony, you get true double entry bookkeeping, easy financial statements, full customer service tools, and item by item profitability, along with project and task management, and more features are being added all the time. Learn more at parsimony.com. That's parsimony, P-A-R-S-I-M-O-N-Y.com. Parsimony.com. We've got that. You're listening to the Awesomers Podcast. Okay, gang, we're back again. Steve Simpson here with Fraser Rice, and we're talking about wealth and all the ways to spend money. And as promised, I'm going to give you my own version of the dad tax. Now, I'm no golf pro, but I'll tell you, uh, when Halloween candy shows up, dad's going to get 33% of that candy. And uh, <laughs> this is the first lesson my kids got about taxation. <laughs> and uh, they were not fans, I, I can assure you, but uh, they totally understand the dad tax exists and the candy will be paid to the house. And uh, th- this very idea that you brought up, which is a, a similar concept of, you know, go ahead and give them an allowance, but uh, take some back for the, the, the tax or the house money or, you know, called the dad tax, whatever you want. I think it's very clever because otherwise, I, I remember when I got my first paycheck, I was outraged at who, who's FUDA and FICA and all these other bastards who taking my money. I hated it. And <laughs> That's right. I was surprised. I was only making minimum wage and all these guys have their hands in my pocket. So I, I agree with you. You know, we, everybody's going to have to pay in uh, on some level, but let's uh, make sure that we manage it and we understand it. So uh, as we as we start to look at this in a big picture basis, uh, I love those calls to action. Do, do you think there's something that you know beyond the wills or beyond the the you know lack of estate planning, some other common thread that runs uh, in the cases that you've seen, something that people could solve or, or work together to create a solution? Well, one of the things that uh, you know we've sort of taken for granted the idea that the entrepreneurs are all going to have these exits uh, that they're going to sell the business and that they're uh, you know they're going to have a liquidity event and then move on and then the business is completely out of the family. Uh, one of the things that and I talked about just before with those exercises and and the kids learning to deal with the money together either on a philanthropic or a vacation basis or or on other fronts is the idea that you're gathering data points and you're gathering understanding amongst the siblings as to what they're good at and not good at and what they're interested in and not interested in. And so that can pay a lot of benefits to the entrepreneur uh, when he or she has to understand from a business succession standpoint who is going to run the business going forward. Um, I think one of the things that has been a recurring theme for a lot of clients and colleagues and so on that I've watched is uh, the idea that business succession, who is going to, uh, who's going to own the business going forward, and then a close cousin to the concept of who is going to run the business going forward. Uh, and these are things that as an entrepreneur, you're so busy many times getting the thing up and running and meeting payroll and, you know, have I got 10 competitors or have I got 12 and uh, wait a minute, is the internet going to blow up my business model or that type of thing that you don't really see it. But uh, especially for those who are sort of looking at retirement, trying to figure out, you know, how do I cash out of my business and at the same time uh, treat my kids the way I want them to be treated 
And then at the same time, for the ones who have been interested in running the business, the ones who can participate if they want, and at the same time, make sure the ones that have the aptitude for running the business, that they're the ones running the business so that the gravy train doesn't blow up. Uh, That's where you want those exercises, those discussions, those thoughts, you want that to happen as early as possible. Uh, Because I think you, when I talked about miscommunication or lack of communication being a significant threat to wealth, uh, you don't have to wait for the patriarch or matriarch to die for that to happen. It can happen on that business succession standpoint where someone, you know, let's say you had a car dealership or something like that and you had three kids and one of them was a real gearhead and understood mechanics, but didn't really understood the, didn't really understand the way, you know, to deal with an auto floor plan and how to sell cars and all that stuff. And you have someone who went off to become an artist and then you had someone who kind of, you know, went off and worked for GM and is now coming back. Uh, that's the type of thing where you say, okay, here's, here's how, these are the skills that, that I need in order for this business to succeed going forward. And, and the kids, you want to make sure the kids understand why that is and that there's buy-in to the plan. Um, And that's where having those exercises early and often on things that don't matter, let's call it as much, uh, but are you know, but can be important and teach accountability. The more exercises like that you can have, the more uh, the more success you have, or more more of a probability of success you have as you sort of move the business forward. And this is really important when you have people uh, who are interested or interested in the income, let's say, but not necessarily interested in actually going to work and you know making sure that everything the trains are running on time and all that stuff. And if you have to hire somebody else to come in. Uh, that's outside of the family to run things going forward. Uh, that that's an important uh, distinction, and and that can cause a lot of hurt feelings. Even even if it's the right decision, uh, you have a you have a greater chance of of getting past that uh, that 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 fulcrum event if if you've had those discussions and the kids innately understand what they're good at and not good at and how the communication works between the two and. Uh, and ultimately, uh, understanding what their aptitudes and interests are going forward so that when you put into place business succession plans and then ultimately estate plans for when you're finally gone, uh, there's some understanding and context as to where those came from. The, the situations that I think cause the most blow-ups are when the, 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 it's, it's a bit of a surprise. And, you know, uh, mom or dad comes in and says, look, you know, the business, I'm, I'm bringing in so-and-so to run it. Uh, I'm giving so-and-so, you know, this amount and so-and-so, this amount and so-and-so, this amount because of X, Y, Z reason. And the kids are all going, well, wait a minute, where, where did that come from? And, you know, if, if they've if they've relied on the notion that something's always going to be there for them or that something big was going to be waiting for them at a certain moment and that doesn't happen, that's a, that, that is a very tough scenario to fix. And, um, uh, and that can, and that ultimately could lead to the, the fissure of the family long-term. And then you get back to the shirt sleeves, the shirt sleeves scenario where people aren't pooling their talents and resources in order to build a, in order to build, you know, sort of a family dynasty to the extent you can. Boy, I, I definitely agree with that. The Blind Side may be a great movie, but it's a terrible tactical me- method to uh, manage your wealth. Uh, you do not want to blindside your family and your kids. And and without planning ahead, again, 
you are leaving it to chance. And again, we all feel we're invincible. And you know, who among us wants to sit down and plan? It's very macabre a situation to do your will and talk about. Well, what if you you know what if you have uh, one arm? Uh, what, what are you going to do? What, uh, what if you have no arms? It's it's a it's not a great scenario to go through, but it is just part of life. We have to deal with it. Um, uh, so, Fraser, before we wrap up, and we're going to uh, make sure that we uh, give the the book a, a little more of a um, shine on it here at the end. But I, I just wonder if you can pull out your crystal ball and tell me what's going to happen with cryptocurrencies, huh? I'm, the, the cryptocurrency, it's a big sure. thing. What, what's the deal with that? So I, if, interesting, if, short answer is I don't know. So my crystal ball is cloudy. <laughs> uh, I've, got, I've got some thoughts on that though. So from a cryptocurrency standpoint, I think, uh, you know, sort of the Bitcoins and Ethereums and so on will continue to persist. Uh, I, think the, I think people are gonna get uh, a little antsy with the volatility around that. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's really pulled back recently. Uh, I, I think the, the, the thing that troubles me about cryptocurrency is that you, you're, you're the confidence in the currency and therefore its validity uh, lies basically in the algorithm that underpins it. Uh, Bitcoin and, and Ethereum and Ripple and the others are, I mean, it's, it's really brilliant what, what's going on there. But the but the confidence, therefore the value behind the currency is 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 shaky. Uh, I think cryptocurrency, you will see, uh, I, I think in general terms, you're going to see it uh, well adapted when people start taking cryptocurrency in exchange for real estate. Uh, that to me is the fulcrum moment. That when people are willing to give up their house or give up land or something for cryptocurrency, you're, you, you, you know it has arrived. Um, the close cousin to that, I think, is that there are a lot of different cryptocurrencies out there that have a... Uh, let's say a traditional currency backing or a base, uh, like a dollar-based cryptocurrency. And I think that those are going to be interestingly, uh, I think those are going to in some ways be adapted first by the traditional banking system uh, as a way to sort of reduce the friction between transactions. So the close cousin to cryptocurrency and what underpin the technology that it underpins it is blockchain that to me is going to have a seismic impact on all sorts of industries. Banking for one, I think the traditional banking back office job uh, is gonna be substantially changed within the next 10 years. Uh, I think industry, the, the industries that could be impacted by it are innumerable. An example, for instance, title insurance. If you have a, a piece of property with all of the information that goes from one person to another and, it's, and it goes through a, a blockchain scenario, title insurance is going to be completely impacted. You're not really going to need it that much. And so, or at the very least, it's going to have to be, it's going to have to be completely rethought. I think the concept of, uh, you know, securities, uh, you know, everything related to the uh, sort of, stocks and bonds world blockchain could make that just so much easier and frictionless that's going to be a big deal uh medical records uh, it could go on and on and on and there there is a place for blockchain and all of that so i mean it's unfortunately it's a big word with a lot of big concepts around it but uh i think an interesting thing to do, i mean I'm, I'm not really here to talk about investment themes that are going to be unbelievable going forward but you know for people who can find uh, 
you know, sort of a good manager or someone who's able to find good blockchain investments that are going to be uh, part of the infrastructure of the U.S. and world economy going forward. I think, I, I to me, that I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, very attractive. So I love that. A great uh, answer to my curveball question. Um, I just, I just felt that you know you'd have a, a unique perspective. And and by the way, the you know whatever happens with crypto, nobody knows, but. That the that foundation of blockchain is indisputably valuable and indisputably world changing, and all the industries you mentioned, plus so many others, oh, from supply yeah. chain management to logistics, all of these things, it's extraordinary powerful, and I'm all excited that. by it for sure. And I, I love that general investment uh, concept of saying, hey, who are the people who are going to be in that blockchain, and you know who are going to help uh, change the world. I think that's very uh, smart indeed. So let's let's talk about your your book. Uh, it, it is it's already out uh, as of August 2018, so people can go buy it. Yep. Um, now, what happens if they go to your website? So if you go to wealthactually.com, there are uh, hopefully a lot of buttons where you can click on it and buy it. It'll take you directly to Amazon, and uh, you can go and you can get it on Kindle or uh, paperback. And for the people who bought it, uh, reported back to me, the paperback comes to you very quickly. Yeah, excellent. Uh, I definitely so I'm I'm a big fan. I usually will buy both the Kindle and the paperback. Uh, there's times where I'm sitting at home, I just want to have that tangible book, and then times when I'm traveling, I still want to be able to see it on the Kindle. So no reason you can't buy two, everybody. Um, yeah. I, I I for sure want to make sure that people really take a, a moment to to let this soak in a little bit. You know, everything that we do. Um, we're doing to build equity. Sometimes it's intellectual equity. Sometimes it's you know uh, tangible wealth equity. You know uh, financial equity. And if there is a whether it's a succession plan as you talked about earlier, or if it is an exit liquidity event, having a plan, having a concept of what that looks like afterwards is such a huge opportunity for for folks out there. And I I really appreciate you taking the time to come and help educate us a bit here today. A total thrill for me to be on. I, this has been a, a really cool discussion. Yeah, I, I definitely am uh, far smarter than I was before. And uh, I uh, will say one more time, you guys can go to wealthactually.com. You can find the, the link over to Amazon there, uh, buy the book. And again, Fraser's not asking for this, but I'm suggesting as a pay it forward guy, read the book, leave a review. It's the right thing to do. It's not that hard. And, uh, and all of us who develop our own private brands and our own products, and we're always wishing we had reviews, this is one of the times you can actually pay it forward. So let's do that. Uh, Fraser, Steve, thanks thank again. Yeah, it's certainly my pleasure to have you. And uh, you know, we'll probably talk to you again one of these times when we decide we want to go on an investment rant or a blockchain or something else. Find me. I'll, uh, I'll be right there for you. I love it. All right. Thanks again. Uh, we'll be right back after this, Awesomers. Catalyst 88 was developed to help entrepreneurs achieve their short and long-term goals in e-commerce markets by utilizing the power of shared entrepreneurial wisdom. Entrepreneurship is nothing if not lessons to be learned. Learn from others. Learn from us. I guarantee that we will learn from you. Visit Catalyst88.com because your success is our success. A giddy up. You're listening to the Awesomers Podcast. Well, it's very clear to me, and I suppose it should be clear to you that Fraser is a very capable uh, knowledge and authority in this particular area of wealth management. And I have already ordered his book. I can't wait to read it. And I'm, I just can't say enough about the ideas that Fraser and I discussed about preparation and about information. And, you know, it, it seems like one of those problems is like, oh, that's a Cadillac problem. You know, 
I'll be lucky if I have that problem of how to deal with wealth and, and finance and, and so on and so forth. But I, I really do want to encourage you guys to, to be on the front end of this equation. Because the more you visualize how to deal with it, the more you prepare, the more likely you are to have it come true, to be quite honest. And most of all, I think you'll be in a better position to manage you know that that accumulation of wealth and some of the things that again are unexpected you know you don't want to have a trust fund baby who's you know uh, somebody who's just not paying attention and not engaged in the world you want to make sure that your family is still okay and that there's a, a legacy that you can create as a result of your of your uh, big payoff so to speak so there's so many things involved in this wealth management I'm glad Fraser was here to join us I hope you are too don't forget uh, this has been episode number 40 of the awesomers.com podcast. And to go check out uh, relevant show notes and details, just go to awesomers.com backslash 40. Well, we've done it again, everybody. We have another episode of the Awesomers podcast ready for the world. Thank you for joining us, and we hope that you've enjoyed our program today. Now's a good time to take a moment to subscribe, like, and share this podcast. Heck, you can even leave a, a review if you wanted. Awesomers around you will appreciate your help. It's only with your participation and sharing that we'll be able to achieve our goals. Our success is literally in your hands. Thank you again for joining us. We are at your service. Find out more about me, Steve Simonson, our guest, team, and all the other Awesomers involved at Awesomers.com. Thank you again. Awesomers.com